On January 30, 2020, the World Health Organization declared a public health emergency of international concern surrounding the novel virus COVID-19. Not long after, production companies began canceling performances out of caution and concern for their audiences and artists. This has left some singers, instrumentalists, dancers, teachers, technicians, and administration members unceremoniously removed from their creative homes. Whether social distancing in their apartments or relocating to hunker down with their families, musicians are collectively facing challenges no one thought to prepare for. But creatives must create, even in the darkest of circumstances. And necessity is the mother of invention. With new creative parameters built around social distancing, members of the classical music industry are finding new ways to explore their creative talents and reach their audiences, and each other. And we are going to find them, together, on the Daily Singer Podcast with Katherine Parsley. This week, I had the chance to chat with the drunken tenor himself, Robert McPherson, who has definitely found opportunity for creativity during the past six months. Mr. McPherson is an internationally acclaimed operatic tenor, with credits from as far away as the Israeli opera, as prestigious as the Metropolitan Opera, and as down-to-earth as the Bumbleshoot Music and Arts Festival. Robert, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. Of course. All right. I hope you will indulge the obvious question, but as the drunken tenor, what are we drinking tonight? Oh, that would be a dirty Vesper. Now, Ooh, what's in a dirty Vesper? Now, this is kind of my own hodgepodge creation because I don't think it officially exists, but it's uh, a Vesper is usually a, a combination of, of gin and vodka. What I'm doing is basically making a dirty martini with the olive juice or the olive brine in there. But I use both gin and vodka because it makes the... It gives the, the vodka by itself with the dirty um, is a little bland. But the, the gin with the dirt can sometimes be a little... It, it sometimes competes with the, the olive flavor. So by mixing the two together, you get a little bit more of a balance. I like it a little bit more gin forward, so I put a little bit more gin in it than vodka. But yeah, it's a, a dirty Vesper. Honestly, I would expect a tenor to like it a little bit more forward. <laughs> you, you mean I like my drink in the mask? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But I think we all like our drinks in the mask lately. <laughs> oh, damn straight. So... I feel like there's a lot of love for alcohol here. So is this part of your, I don't want to say your identity as a kid, but did you see yourself becoming the drunken tenor or, or was there a different vision for your for your future life? Oh, Lord, no. I was a Pentecostal preacher's kid. There was no alcohol oh. in my house. <clears throat> I mean, it came, um, drinks came very much later in my uh, existence. But, um while I never really saw myself as the drunken tenor, at a very early age, I would use humor to diffuse uh, situations. So when I was being bullied as a kid, if I could make them laugh with me as opposed to at me, that seemed more in control for me. 
so I, uh, humor became kind of a defense mechanism for me at, at a very uh, formative year of my life. So I think later in life, I had this love of comedy. Um, I remember my, my college professor in acting looked at me and he's, he's like, you know, when I look at you, I want to laugh. And, and I told him that didn't sound really comforting. And he's like, no, 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 you have, you, you have a natural knack for comedy. Uh, but, so we're going to work on drama. And so he pushed me for all like the big dram dramatic scenes in our acting classes. But, but comedy always felt really close to me. But what I saw myself early on in my life was as a performer. I, I wanted to be in front of people either singing. Uh, that was the first love, just absolutely singing. And then I started to get into the more theatrical part of it and to create a character and to, to be able to inhabit this person on stage for whatever the role was, was just such a thrill to me. So the drunken tenor came very late in my life um, after having decades of being a performer in, in lots of different uh, venues. I think it makes so much sense to combine humor, which is, sounds like it's essentially your safe place, with your passion, which is performing, and putting those things two together would make a really fantastic drunken tenor place for you to perform. I think that's really amazing. But being a Pentecostal preacher's kid, <laughs> what did the family think of this? Well, those who I, I grew up with, my I was raised by my grandmother, and I, by the time I created the drunken tenor, she was... She had some end-of-life things with dementia and stuff like that, so she never really got to see that part of me. But she got to see me in comic opera. She saw my very first um, L'Italiana when I was in Victoria, B.C. I, incidentally, at the McPherson Playhouse, I made my leading man debut. Um, so she got to see me do comic opera. She got to see me do, you know, Barbieri di Sevilla and... and, and my physical comedy and and to hear the audience around her laugh she was incredibly proud of me and that that was something that always fed me because i knew i knew she got to see me actually do it she got to see me succeed and she was always the proudest person in the audience and anytime she came to see a show um anybody around her knew that was her grandson up there singing so, uh, so yeah, she, she got to see the comic side of me, but she never got to see this alternate persona that I created. That's a really beautiful story. Thank you so much for sharing that well, with Of course. Me. So what were your musical goals like before the Doran Contender? And, and have those goals changed since you've developed this really fun character that audiences like to interact with? I think, you know what are they, you know, BDT, you know, before Drunken Tenor, um, I was, I was like most performers. Uh, you're, you're trying to get hired. You're trying to have your career go in a direction that you want it to go in. You want to sing roles that, that you're attracted to and that feed you and excite your imagination. And you're trying to make a paycheck. So, mm -hmm. so that was, you know, I was, I was like pretty much every performer. And, and, you know, I mean, I've, I've had a, 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 you know, a pretty decent career. You know, I made it, you know, made it to the Met. I was at Washington National, English National Opera. I have a Grammy with Houston Symphony uh, doing Vatsek, of all things. 
so you know, I mean, I I pursued it and still do as as a legitimate tenor voice. And that's the thing that's always important to me is that once I started to to do the drunken tenor, I never wanted to hide behind the comedy. I always wanted to sing as purely beautiful as possible and not use the comedy to to kind of hide defaults in my voice. That was one of the things that I remember seeing Beverly Sills on The Muppet Show. Here she is singing all this silly stuff, and she was a fearless performer when you when you see her doing, you know, Anna Belena or Lucia. And she was just as fearless when she was doing Pigoletto. And that was what I, I, I just remember that, that I heard her truly sing next to Miss Piggy. And she didn't dumb it down. She didn't do a lot of... She sang like Beverly Sills, but she was funny. And that really mattered to me. I think for a lot of us, being an opera singer on our kids' TV programs was really formative. Well, and that's, that's the thing is, you know, the drunken tenor is where I get to explore this comic idea that I have, this, this, this way of speaking to a generation who might have a preconception about what opera is. And I try to break that down. You know, my, my goal is that you can show up to a drunken tenor, know nothing about opera, I will take you by the hand, and you will have a great time. But at the same time, you know, I, I'm still, you know, actively being a performer in my own right, and I also love making other people's visions come alive. You know, another directorial idea, and inhabiting that vision and that character idea and moving an audience in the traditional medium that I have spent my life doing. So when we're finally back in an open theater situation, what can audiences expect from a live show when they come to see you? Well, first and foremost, and I can say this because of experience, people will laugh. And I brought it to the Seattle Fringe Festival, and I was, you know, this is not a music festival. This is, you know, um, avant-garde theater, dance works and whatnot. And then me. And I won Best of Fringe. And that was because I believe that I, I met the audience where they were. It, it's one of the things my wife always was telling me. You can say any jokes that you want, but you have to make sure that you give an avenue and a path for your audience to come into it. So I always want to thread the needle. So if you know nothing about what I am parodying, I will make sure that you still find the laughs that are there. I think sometimes I, I will surprise you and do something that's kind of unexpected. And the one thing that I was really adamant about, um, I call it the heart monologue of the show, but especially when I'm doing the two-act version, I want to make sure that people hear the real thing without shtick, where there's a moment where I sing opera, and I don't hide behind the joke, and I give them the real, unfiltered, operatic moment. 
And what I've sung for that has changed many times over the years, but that was always very important to me. But the other thing that's also important to me, before I get to that moment, I never make opera the joke. It's never, opera is so strange and ha-ha, isn't that silly? It's always the irresponsible man-child who hasn't got his crap together, and he's irresponsible, and he, he keeps trying his best. But that's why everything goes wrong is because he's just not he's not prepared or it's his own personal demons or his own inabilities at times that gets in his way but as a character i believe in opera you know as as the writer of it, the show of course i do but but also the the drunken tenor as a character loves the art form and he has a voice um but he he also has obstacles to overcome and he doesn't always rise to the occasion in the way but he always keeps going and that's the thing is like you know even when he's in over his head he always keeps pushing forward and trying to get through it even though that's making up lyrics or quoting the olive garden menu he does whatever it takes to get through that is absolutely one of my favorite things about seeing the products that you put out, the videos, is the drunken tenor's reverence for opera. And you're right, the drunken tenor never makes a joke of opera because it is something that he loves. And by giving opera to a character like the drunken tenor, I think that it really shows that opera is for everyone. It's not necessarily elitist, it's elite. It is... <laughs> pinnacle but it's for everyone oh i no love one that should be i'm glad you like that you can use that if you like <laughs> well i i always i mean you know one of the taglines is it's bringing low comedy to new heights i i always feel like because we are the olympics of singing yes i was just thinking that so i i want i want to honor you know, I, I want to honor my lineage that comes from, you know, Rocky Blake, Nikolai Geda, UC Bierling, going back to, you know, Tagliavini and, and, and Caruso. But I also want to honor my lineage of, you know, PDQ Bach, Victor Borga, um, you know, the, the, these people who demystified our art form through comedy because one of the things I, I i have had a little bit of a a disagreement with is this idea that if you just put pretty people on stage and and i have some amazing performers who are very attractive so you know i i don't i don't think you know that's a thing and of course my my wife thinks i'm pretty i don't know uh so i'm hope you know that's good but what I love is they were able to demystify this art form by making you laugh, using comedy to kind of get your guard down. And one of the things that I've learned with that heart moment in the show, if I can make you laugh, I am really close to making you cry. And when I sing an aria for the first time, and, and some of the people I've had said, it's like, you know, I've never been a part of this. But when they feel that for the first time and they feel sound waves hit them, 
in a way that they've never experienced, they're overwhelmed. Because let's be honest, drama and comedy are so close to each other. And, you know, as they say, you know, drama, you know, dying's easy, comedy's hard. And, you know, okay, not every death scene is easy, but, but comedy definitely <laughs> takes a little bit of work. Uh, and, and to me, it's a craft. It's a craft. It's something that you have to think out, plan out, have very specifically worked out, and then respond in the moment. It's like doing a Rossini ornamentation. You have it all worked out, but sometimes on the night of a show, you go in a different way. And that's what I love because, you know, when it comes to an audience, especially when you have a live audience and you can read their, their laughter, every audience is different because for every person, humor, that, that sense of humor is a personal thing. It's, it's subjective and, and they, they respond as individuals and, and you never know what you're going to get when it's a live audience. And I love that. I love that spontaneity. And that is the joy and the pain of a live performance. Yes. But speaking of bringing comedy into opera, the drunken tenor, from what I understand, is responsible for bringing us the opera hashtag wars yes. that have been online since June of 2017. Yes. We've just passed the three-year anniversary. Or is it a birthday? Is this something that the drunken tenor <laughs> gave birth to? Well, okay. First and foremost, I have to give props to At Midnight. I completely stole the idea. But the thing is, at that point, at midnight had stopped, but they had these hashtag wars where he would put a hashtag out there and then and then people, you know, he would have his comedians um, have their suggestions and then it would go up on Twitter and everybody would, you know, weigh in. So I just kind of did my version of it and never expected it to become the thing that it became. And I'll tell you, there's some weeks I'm going, I don't, I don't know how to do another one. But what I, what I like to, yeah, it's like, I just, what, what is the hashtag for this week? Oh my God, I'm, I'm never going to get one. But what I, what I loved about what I did that was different than, than at midnight, it was, because, uh, you know, if you went to Twitter and, and you looked at it, it was a collection of verbal jokes. What I wanted to do was translate it into a visual medium. I wanted to take these suggestions and through the magic of my self-taught Photoshop skills, which I actually use GIMP, I learned how to design these, these banners and have a visual representation of somebody's suggestion. What's interesting, there are very funny verbal suggestions that I can't find a visual for. And there's some jokes where it's like, you know, that's not the funniest thing, you know, uh, textually. But if you put the right visual to it, it's hysterical. So there was this, this conflict between, you know, what is a good verbal joke and what is a good visual joke that somebody can see an image for. And I, I, I love it that there's also this ongoing conversation with my audience because they are giving me their ideas and they become empowered and they they can see something and 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 the joy that some people get when i've chosen their their suggestion is is infectious and and i love that i love that because everyone likes to see their ideas come to life 
and they get to be a winner. They get, I mean, I, all the gifts of like, you know, I'd like to thank the Academy. You know, it's, 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 it's really fun. And I, I'm, I'm grateful that people have stayed engaged three years now. As an audience member who has sometimes thrown out a suggestion or two, I always love seeing everybody else's ideas. They are always better than mine. But <laughs> wow, the creativity of the people in this industry is off the charts. So do you have a, a favorite hashtag and answer? Is there a um, one that's just stuck with you? I don't really have a favorite hashtag, but there was what I always love is when you you know when they do a fireworks show and at the end where it's like all the fireworks go from they just they explode you you know in in the finale of those there's been a couple hashtags uh one that I remember was the it was gourmet shows. And I was able to come up with a, a background of, of basically a food court. And, you know, one of it is a light in the pizza oven, you know, Le Lisier de S'mores, the crepe of Lucretia, you know, Pana Balena, um, that, <laughs> which is so painful, but I, I love that. It's much like in The Good Place where you, you look in the background and they have all these really punny shops. So that was, was one of my favorites. But the other one I really I loved... I remember that one distinctly. I yes. loved it. That is an absolute favorite. Yes. I also... There was Opera Apocalypse movies. And what I what I loved was 28 Italian songs and arias later. And to do this blend of, you know, 28 days later and the little you know yellow book that we've all sung over was was just that was one of my favorite suggestions and it was so clever and i was able to come up with a, a, a visual for it so i was very happy about that that was very funny i really loved that one i i don't know if you remember add a movie ruin an opera yes the the banner you came up with the banner you chose was the yeoman the yeoman of the guardians of the galaxy. Yes, that was actually a good friend of ours. <laughs> that was fantastic. That had me absolutely howling. <laughs> well, and and that's the Speaking thing of is absolutely. Oh, oh, yeah, no, but that's the thing is like you know, um, if you can find the silly visual representation of something, you're on the right path. Well, speaking of silly visual representations, back in 2016, <laughs> it seems that the Westboro Baptists were not super thrilled with a silly visual that the drunken tenor supplied them on Twitter. First of all, kudos. Making the Westboro Baptists angry is a personal bucket list item of mine. Bow down. Bow down. <laughs> Bravo. Bravo. <laughs> and Can I, you tell me a little bit more about what happened? Well, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know how I got into this, but I was seeing, you know, because of, of course we all know that they're famous for signs that, you know, God hates faggots and, and gays and stuff like that. And I had, I, I, I looked at it and in my mind all of a sudden I thought of the fact that the bassoon is called a faggot. So in, in my, you know, silliness, 
I, I created this image of a bassoonist sitting there playing a bassoon, and I, I probably should have blurred out whoever it was because I, you know, I, I, looking back on it now. But the thing is, you know, I, I, and I tried to kind of capture their visual imagery, and I, you know, I said, you know, God hates faggots you know, as the bassoon. And and the thing is, I mean, I, I know some double reed players and I'm pretty sure God's not at least a, a fan of them. Um, but, but yeah, I did a, I did a whole... Um, well done, drunken tenor. Well done. Well, and the thing about it is it, it, was, it was so funny because not all of them got it. Because, you know, I mean... They, they, I mean, I think on some level they thought I just misspelled it, and then they're trying to figure out why is there this bassoon player on there. But yeah, because uh, you know, I mean, I'm sure their Google skills are not as strong as some people's. Um, but so no, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I got into a little back and forth with a couple members of the the organization, to use the term lightly, and I um. <laughs> I was really proud of that. I was I was very proud of of I think that was one of my first It was the first time I really poked the bear. And I don't do that a lot, but occasionally I mean, I don't find my, I I don't think of myself as a political comedian, but I think as a performer you have to have a political viewpoint. So there are times where you know i'm i'm willing to 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 push in in a direction i mean i i try not to stack the weights too much in one direction especially with some of the stuff i'm doing as a uh as as the drunken tenor i i want people to maybe let their guard down for a moment cuz like when i'm doing trump tweets i don't do any commentary. I take his tweets, and lately I've done some of his quotes, and I set them to handle. Because to me, when sung, it's more ridiculous. But again, I'm not inserting myself into it. I am trying to let it live out there. Because, you know, I, I, I know that people who come to my shows are from a wide variety of background. And I... You know, I wanted to just have his quotes speak for themselves. And people could make up their own mind uh, as to what that means. That's one of the things I always loved about Weird Al. He was always able to find parody in, in things that were more universal than very narrow. And, and rarely has he had any controversy. Now... Then you see somebody like Randy Rainbow, who I absolutely adore, but he's very much more from a from from the left side, and I love his writing. I mean, uh, please don't think I'm giving any disrespect to him because I he's like must see TV for me every every uh, week or every other week when he he, he uh, releases something. But I know that I'm at my best when I let the parody speak for itself and I don't have to have the daggers quite as sharp I just have to have the writing sharp and then people can make their own decisions 
and the targets that I'm focusing on, if I've done it right, you'll come to your own decision about what you think of them one way or the other. And that's the beauty of art, to let the audience create their own reactions and reflections. Well, and it's also the thing is, I also feel that you should never disrespect the audience. I hate when people think an mm -hmm. audience is stupid or that I have to spoon feed them or have to dumb it down. I never want to do that to my audience because I respect them and I, I, I think they're amazing. Now, that doesn't mean I don't want to, you know, uh, thread the needle for them because maybe not all of them have my background. So sometimes I have to give a little bit of information. But I don't want to lose them. I don't, I don't want to turn them off to what I'm doing. My persona, who I am, I think shines through. And I want them to relate to that person. And then hopefully they find what I do clever. And, you know, I, as I told you earlier, I was a Pentecostal preacher's kid. And that meant very conservative. And as most people can tell nowadays, I'm not as conservative. Um, you know, I'm... I, I have I've evolved in my own journey and that was because some people didn't demonize me they talked with me my my college friends showed me that there was so much more to life and so much more out there than I had been raised to believe and when my best friend came out to me in college I had to really think about everything that I was taught about gays and I realized that either everything I was taught was wrong or everything I thought about him was wrong. And I made an adjustment. And I, I, I had people teach me through love and I evolved and became a better person because of them. Not because of me. That was, I mean, I, yes, I did the journey, but they, they showed me them. They showed me these amazing people and I had to reevaluate everything that I had thought up to that point. So I hope maybe using comedy, there's a way that I can take people's defense mechanism, mechanisms down and hopefully they will just think. Yep, they, don't, they, don't, they don't have to agree with me. Nobody has to agree with me. But just think, you know, because I don't do these from a dumb place. I... I spend a lot of time on, on my writing because it's important to me. And, uh, you know, maybe they'll find a grain of truth. Or they'll just laugh for a little bit. And that's fine, too, you know, because we all could use a laugh now. Without a doubt. And, you know, with COVID-19 having shut down most of the United States, mm -hmm. a lot of us are, like you're <laughs> saying, are having these tough conversations, some of us earlier in life. Some of them are having these conversations now since we're all stuck at home with each other. So what has COVID-19 and the closing of the theaters meant for you in the drunken tenor? Well, um, first off, there's there's been lots of martinis and midnight snacks. Uh, you know, like any, any good performer. <laughs> but, uh, but seriously, um, this was the last thing I think any of us saw coming. I mean, you know, we, we've been struggling with some financial situations with, with companies having funding and whatnot. This is the first time that I can think of where we can't 
do what we do. And like every performer, I, you know, I'm, I'm a live operatic tenor. And all of a sudden, you know, I can't do what I do. The very last thing I got to sing was, you know, Cavaradossi. And fortunately, that was in February. And so I, I got to do my performances. And, and it was great because, you know, I had, because this was local and I had all the people who mattered to me. I had so many friends and people from my, my past. My mother-in-law came from Salt Lake City to see it. Um, Holly, my wife, was there all the time, uh, every performance. And, and it, meant, it meant the world to me to be able to show this new direction in my voice, to, to going a little bit, you know, from a Rossini tenor, all of a sudden doing a role that's, you know, more spinto or lirico spinto at least. Mm-hmm. And and that was that was amazing. That was great. And you're looking at the world and going, okay, there's this new direction, and I'm going to sing things, and and I'm going to go in this new direction vocally as an artist and two weeks later we're closed down and and the thing is not everybody closed down at the same time but I knew when my wife came home from work and was working at home that something had changed and as the weeks went on I had more and more cancellations more and more cancellations And that's when you sit there and you think, what are you going to do? You know, and, and, and we find out, the more we find out about it, you know, we find out that, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I said to some friends, it's like, you know, it seems like this virus was hatched in a lab by an evil scientist that got spurned by a singer. Because, you know, it affects our lungs. And now I'm hearing it affects our ears and it affects your brains and I mean, I have a hard enough time memorizing music as it is. I don't need brain damage on top of this. So <laughs> so there's all this part of the world where you're trying to survive. So then I thought to myself, with, with no viewpoint of what the future is going to be, there is this thing that I have created, the drunken tenor. And I reached out. I reached out to uh, Seattle Opera and to have Christina Shepelman, who I've, I've known for, for decades, basically say, yeah, I think we would like to do an online version of your show. And then to adapt it and, and to make The Drunken Tenor this, this video show. And it became very important to me not to just film a live show version of it, but to adapt it to video. Because we were going to be doing all this remote because none of us can be together, at least not safely. So everybody recorded it in their homes, their, their you know, uh, specific parts. And then we had to build this together and to try to create something, you know, I mean, I grew up with variety shows and, and, and things like that. So it, it was to kind of create this drunken tenor variety show that's gone wrong. Because, of course, if the drunken tenor 
can't learn his music correctly, that also means the technology is probably going to go badly as well. So that became part of the, the show. As I was taught, you know, the, the medium is the message. And if we're going to do an online show, then, then I have to adapt it for online. I can't just try to film what I did live. And that was, that was one of the reasons I, I ended up doing this, uh, you know, the, the quarantini edition uh, version of The Drunken Tenor. Because I wanted to still express what I do and to make people laugh and to maybe get a little joy in their lives. Because it's serious out there. And, and we all needed to, to just maybe smile for 40 minutes. Well, I, for one, certainly appreciate you and the Drunken Tenor doing everything you can to make us smile. And I have been a big fan, especially of the What Day Is It videos. <laughs> yes. What day is today? If you don't remember or think it's November, I'm here to help you out and tell you that it's now Thursday. <laughs> yes, I I really enjoyed those and then it came a point where like going, okay, I gotta finish this uh this this show that I'm doing for Seattle Opera. I might need to require to, to, to retire it. But it was it was such a fun thing to like just come up with different ways to say what day of the week it was. It was brilliant. It was creative. It was new and fresh every day, and it was uh, it was it was pretty good. It was Thank very you. good. Thank you. So, how can your audience interact with you right now since we're all socially distanced? Well, I mean, first and foremost, it you know go to thedrunkentenor.com, as we like to say, not just any drunken tenor, the drunken tenor. But also, I'm, I'm on all the social medias. Facebook is a, is a great way to have it be a little bit more interactive because I do, I do respond to people, and, and we can have a bit more of a dialogue at times on Facebook. YouTube is, is a repository of all my silly videos, so it's all there, anything that I've created over the, uh, the, the, the how many years. My Twitter game is, is hit and miss, but I'm, I'm still on the Twitter. I'm on the Instagram where a lot of my hashtag wars are, are posted as well. What's been interesting is depending on how you interact with me, you have a different viewpoint about what the drunken tenor is. This online version of doing a performance was like one of the first times that people go, oh, that's what the drunken tenor is. So, you know, <laughs> it's, it's a journey. I will admit, I, I felt the same way, because I'm mostly familiar with your short little skits and your, I don't even, I feel like that's terrible to call them skits, your, oh, no, your no. short videos, and your, your hashtag wars and these conversations that we have online, and then to see what you really do, it was, it was worth, if people don't know you, if people only know the online internet you and haven't experienced this show highly recommended well and, very and, different and it's, it's up on in youtube the, in the way that fight club is different fight club is different the movie is different than fight club the book yes well and 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 we have the the, the full show that we did for seattle opera uh because it's now back in our control and it's buck it's, it's on the youtube uh we'll probably uh, put it on the uh, the facebook as well um but yeah ev everything for me emanated from the live show because i'm a live performer 
so when we started looking at all these other platforms, we started thinking like, okay, we need content. And and that was that was the start of the journey where I would do like these silly videos and I would do I first it started just like some cocktail videos. And then I started doing some some parody videos. And you know, I've I've been a little all over the map at, at one time or another, but at at my best, I I hope. I speak to people where they are. I I give you some sort of comic interpretation of something in your life. If it's a live show, you get to sit there for either 45 minutes or a two-act show, and I take you through a journey, sometimes commenting on things that are going on right now, and then just finding joy and humor in classic operatic rep that has been around for, you know, hundreds of years. And then on the YouTube, sometimes it's it's you know, finding a, a parody with a with a pop song that talks to what's going on in the moment. And some of that's a little bit more disposable because, you know, what's going on in the moment, you know, you wait a month and a half and it's no longer relevant. So I, I, I'm very well aware of, like, disposable comedy and timeless comedy. Victor Borga was amazing at timeless comedy. You could go see his show, and I saw him live, you could go see his show, and it was always funny. Randy Rainbow right now is is disposable comedy because as things evolve, you go back to some of his parodies. Not all of them, but but some of them aren't quite as relevant now because he was speaking at a time. And that's that's great. So, you know, I try to find a balance between the two different comic versions. Well done. The balance is beautiful, and you are engaging and hilarious. Thank you. Is there, before I head out, is there any questions that you wish your viewers or your audience would ask you other than, you know, what's your Venmo? Rob McTenner. But anyway, um, <laughs> no, I... I was thinking about that the other day, and one of the things that I, I find funny, when, when you hear the drunken tenor, and you don't know what it is, which, I mean, I, I have been dealing with that for ages. I mean, I've done this for six years, and I, I sometimes have a hard time explaining what the drunken tenor is. And, you know, the, the most common question I always get is like, you know, are you drinking through the show? And I always say, oh, God, no. This is one of the most vocally challenging performances I've ever created for myself or have been a part of. It's incredibly challenging. I perform absolutely sober. I write hammered. It's while drinking I come up with ideas. That's where, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm having, you know, drinks with friends, and I have, like, this list of on my phone of, of notes where I get the germ of an idea and I'll just write it down and then like days later or even months later I'll look at it and going oh that was a great idea thanks drunk me uh, so <laughs> I'm having this this constant conversation where the the writer part of me is trying to communicate with the performer part of me 
So it's not so much as, you know, what I wish my viewers would ask. What I would, I would say is that there is this huge amount of work and craft that is involved in making it look like I just showed up and I don't know what I'm doing. And that juxtaposition is where I love. I love the fact that, you know, it looks like I just showed up and, you know, I, I, I don't have anything together. And I wrestle and struggle with every one of those moments because it's important to me because I, I have to have a narrative structure. There's got to be a middle, beginning, and end. I have to take an audience on a journey. To me, comedy is serious. And that's what makes it fun, when you take it seriously. When you do the work, you do the, the structural ideas, and then the audience can just sit there, and they can just let it wash over them, and they don't have to do anything, because I've done the work for them. So... Yeah, I, it's, it's not so much that I wish they would, you know, ask me, but I want them, I would like people to know that as silly as the show is at times, I take it very seriously because I also want to be an ambassador for my art form. I want to talk to the larger structures of what we do as artists and then, you know, make them giggle and maybe have a poop joke. <laughs> well... I think if they don't quite understand who or what you are or do from the beginning, they will have a very clear picture by the end. I and that's what I always hope, and and that's been my experience. If if you show up and you give me that faith, I'll take you on a journey. Like Dolly Parton's version of "It takes a lot of money to look this cheap for you." Yes, it takes a lot of seriousness to look this drunkenly unput together. Yeah, oh, thank you for doing a Dolly Parton reference. I adore that. Um, yeah, no, she. I, I remember when she said that it takes a lot of money to look this cheap. It takes a lot of structure and detail to look like I just showed up as a disaster. Though I would also say if my audience, you know, if, when we can have audiences again, I'll be sober, but you don't have to be. <laughs> <It's> Yay! <laughs> <laughs> the show I mean, we all might be pickled by the end of this <laughs> quarantine, but you know I will be there drinking hand. Damn straight. No, the, the show's always a little better with a little something in the carburetor. It's another day inside our home. We cannot go outside and roam. So we sit around all day and drink the pain away. I wish I could meet up with friends. Mimosas, that would never end. Instead, I'll see what's on the shelf and make the drinks myself. I'll make a Bloody Mary. I'll make a whiskey sour. But I'll be sure to drink a glass of water every hour. I'll make an Thanks for listening to the Daily Singer Podcast with Catherine Parsley. If you like our show, and want to know more, check out dailysinger.com, spelled daily hyphen singer, or please leave us a review on iTunes. Join us next week when we talk about acting while singing, meet Stanislavski in the studio, and have a conversation with actor, singer, and director Sharon Camille.